Barrett Carter Londine, and I am the host of the True Consequences podcast. And I was six years old when my brother was murdered. Before we delve into this case, I first want to give a massive thank you to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode. As I say every time, it's brands like NordVPN that enable us to continue producing content like this, so please do not hesitate to show them your love and support. NordVPN is a super fast VPN service with over 5,200 servers in 59 different countries. Using NordVPN, you can get access to your favorite shows on Netflix, even when they're not available in your region. You simply just click to change country and you can binge away. And NordVPN is perfect for us true crime sleuths during our research to keep our Google searches from getting us put on a list, as NordVPN has no data logging and double data encryption, which keeps your online activities anonymous. So no FBI agents are gonna come knocking on your front door for deep diving into your favorite pet case. NordVPN can be used on your computer, iOS device, and on your Android device, so you can stay protected on every single platform and device you own. And the lovely people over at NordVPN have hooked you up with a special deal. You can get 68% off NordVPN, making it just $3.71 a month, plus an additional month free if you go to nordvpn.com forward slash Joshua Miles and use code Joshua Miles at checkouts. And to celebrate NordVPN's birthday, happy birthday by the way, NordVPN, every purchase of their two year plan will not only get you that additional month for free, but you'll also get a surprise gift. So make sure you jump over to nordvpn.com forward slash Joshua Miles, use code Joshua Miles at checkout and stay protected online today. Now, Back to the case. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. It's important to note that some names mentioned within this episode's coverage of Jacob's case have been changed and protected by request of Jacob's family. The interviews you hear within this episode are either taken directly from my own interviews with the family or from the True Consequences podcast. Some of the audio recordings of the interviews are not the best quality due to these interviews being conducted over the internet. I apologise in advance for that. I am trying to work on ways to make that better and the audio quality far better. Jacob's family have also granted me access to the case files that they have in connection to Jacob's case. This episode does contain discussions of child abuse. If you're affected by any of the topics discussed, there is a link in the description and in the pinned comments to find information for different charities and organisations. To get a deeper understanding of this case, we first have to turn back the clocks to 1977. 
my mom and dad started dating, I want to say in 1977. My mom was 17 and my dad was 20. My dad was, was very interested in my mom. She was a little bit ambivalent about it, <laughs> but eventually he won her over with his, uh, his charm and his sense of humor. And, and so they started dating and then they got married. They had a set of twins. My mom was pregnant with twins. One was miscarried and one died at birth in 1978. And then I was born in 1980. Yeah, it was hard because he was never around, really. He would go with his friends before we woke up and come back after we were asleep. So we really wouldn't see him or anything. He really didn't, like, think, <laughs> you know, have a family I need to feed. He just thought about himself, basically. Well, I remember there were times where you were worried about eating me and taking care of me. Yeah, it was hard. There was a little old lady that lived in the apartment village. I don't know if you remember, but we would take a walk every day and uh, we would pray, you know, for God to help us, to feed us. And we'd take a, a walk around the apartment complex. By the time we got back, there was a food on the doorstep every time she would bless us God would bless her he used her to bless us everything we needed was in that bag and God put her there she was our angel she really helped us a lot I don't know if she heard our prayer or I, I don't know she just came out of nowhere I know it was that one lady that put food on our door almost every day <laughs> the only thing that mattered is that you had food and you were okay, and we had a place to go. Nothing else mattered. He essentially would abandon us for days and days at a time, and then call and be like bragging about eating lobster and steak and stuff. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, he was ridiculous. He just wasn't grown, and he wouldn't think about anybody, like I said. I guess he's naive. Selfish. Selfish. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was like, Maybe three or four. I don't even know why I remember this. And if, I, if I'm, if i like, making this up, tell me. But I, I remember one time you were, like, washing the dishes and you were just crying. And I, I remember I went up to you. And I said, Mom, when I'm grown up, I'm going to be better than my dad. I'm going to take care of my family. Yeah, you did. I understand why you decided to take us home why you decided it was better and I think it was the right choice it was hard because if I had to work and take care of everybody I might as well come home and do it here well at least we had where I had family and people you to know help. people that care yeah. instead of nobody yeah except people you know except for me and you yeah and that one lady <laughs> <laughs> that I don't even know it was as a result of this lack of involvement Eric's father had in the lives of Eric and his mother, who we'll call Anna, that they decided to move back to New Mexico to be closer to family and so that they could be within a much better support network. And it was after they had moved back to New Mexico when a man called Spencer came into Eric and Anna's lives. And I remember when I first met him, I think like we went to his place to watch movies one night and he was like so charming and so fun. Like I remember I was like, oh, I like this guy. He's actually interested and he's talking to me and he, you know, so I like anybody 
would have fallen for that. Anybody would have seen that as a good thing and not saw through that because he was really good. He was a good con. At hiding who he really was. Yeah. He was, I don't know how many years he's done it, but he was a pro at making himself look good and mm-hmm. making people feel comfortable around him. My dad and Spencer were best friends. They met because Spencer's dad was a preacher in a local church in Socorro, New Mexico, where my mom and my family's from. And my dad was preaching at that church and also doing a bit of a mentorship situation with Spencer's dad, and they, and they became friends. They both liked basketball, playing basketball, and you know they just got along and they, they hit it off. And, and they became friends before my mom and my dad started dating, so they had known each other for a while. And my mom had known Spencer for her whole life. They grew up together. My family went to his dad's church. So there's all these connections, you know, but but that's basically how my dad and him met and became friends. You see, Spencer had actually known Anna for a very long time. He had been best friends with Eric's father and Eric's mother, Anna, welcomed any help and support. After all, she had found the situation she was in to be extremely difficult to manage. So long as her son, Eric, had food and was in good health, she was happy. According to a supplemental report filed later on by the authorities, Anna and Spencer began to hang out a lot, but they didn't do anything more in their friendship as Anna hadn't separated yet from her husband, Eric's father, and Spencer had still been married to his wife, a wife he had two children with. Though, given the circumstances that Eric's father had left Anna and Eric in, it wasn't long before Anna filed for divorce and separated from him. And soon after Anna's separation, Spencer also separated from his own wife. Now, following those separations, Eric and Anna began to see Spencer considerably more, even on occasion spending the night with Spencer. It was during this period that Anna had told Spencer that she hadn't any intentions of going back to her first husband or having another child with him. However, the relationship between Anna and Spencer had been fairly on and off. And as the months progressed, Anna decided to try and reconcile with her first husband. This reconciliation was unfortunately unsuccessful that it did see Anna becoming pregnant with her first husband's child. I remember um, right before you got pregnant and I told you, Mom, I'm going to have a brother. Yeah. And you didn't believe me. Mm-mm. I thought it was going to be a girl <laughs> and it was a boy. Sure. You're right. <laughs> I wanted him so bad. I wanted a brother so bad. Like I was so desperate. And just as history tends to have a sad habit of repeating itself, Anna's first husband quickly went back to his old ways of emotionally neglecting a heavily pregnant Anna and his son, Eric. In 1986, Anna and her first husband welcomed Jacob Jeremiah Landine into the world. It seemed for a brief time that the birth of Jacob aided in the repair of Anna's relationship with her first husband. Though, yet again, it wasn't long before he began to grow distant, and by that point, Anna had taken enough. When Jacob was just six months old, Anna, Eric, and Jacob left Anna's first husband for the final time and moved to Socorro, New Mexico. I remember Jacob 
I know I was young, but he had such a huge personality that was impossible to ignore. He was a bit of a daredevil. He was crazy. He liked crazy dangerous things. One example of that is is we had this baby swing and it was the 80s, so it wasn't the most safe device. There was no such thing as child safety in the 80s. He had this wind-up swing, so you know it was motorized, but you had to you had to crank it to get it to go. And it was probably about four feet tall and it had a little bucket seat that he would sit in. And at some point he figured out that when the swing went forward far enough, he could grab the front legs of the swing. And as the swing went backwards, he could pull the entire thing backwards onto the floor, which was horrifying the first time everybody saw that happen. I remember the collective gasp at my grandmother's house when that happened. And then my brother just laid there laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing that had ever happened. And then after that, he just wanted to do it all the time. So we had to stop putting him in the swing because he just, he couldn't be trusted not to do something like that. He would pull all of the drawers out of the kitchen cabinets and there would be knives and forks and various cutlery flying around, landing on the ground near him. He thought it was hilarious because it was loud. He just had the best laugh and the best smile. And he was just such a sweet kid, so curious and so fearless. And I think I I really admired that about him because I was terrified child. I was scared of everything. And Jacob had no fear at all, which was, was inspiring for sure. It wasn't long after Anna had moved back to New Mexico with the kids before Spencer wormed his way back into their lives. As it would later transpire, Spencer had actually concealed his true motives. He wanted Anna to separate from her first husband, Spencer's apparent best friend, and he would stop at nothing to ensure that happened. We were just talking, he like, he weaseled his way into my life basically because it was a con, but he would tell me, you know, stuff to make me question your dad. You know, like, he's calling so-and-so behind your back and this and that. And I look at the phone bill and sure enough, you know, it's on there. But I didn't know he was using it to try to get me away from him. Conniving kind of way. He just, like, was ploying and plotting and thinking of how he could get us to break up. And he pretty much did it because he left his wife and I left your dad and then, you know, I don't know how it happened, but he weaseled his way into my life. I started talking to him and I don't even know what happened. He weaseled his way into my life, even though I didn't like him. And he conned me into, you know, I don't know, I guess I kind of liked him and kind of believed him after a while because he was a good con artist and he lied to me. He told me everything I wanted to hear, I guess. I feel like everything moved pretty quickly before I knew what we were living with him. Yeah, he was like, I don't know how to even explain it. He was like a some animal waiting to pounce. Unfortunately, this charade that Spencer had presented himself as to attract Anna under his control began to crumble, and Anna began noticing strange occurrences happening to her youngest child, Jacob. It was like stuff, weird stuff would happen, like there was sunflower seed shells in his bed, in his crib. He was getting hurt all of a sudden for unexplainable reasons. And basically, he what he told me was lies. He would tell me that my son, you, kicked Jacob in the head when he was walking by, that he happened to see it and this and that. But that wasn't true. He was actually, I believe, he was hitting him every time he got a chance. Every time we turned our back, he was hurting my child, your brother. I remember being blamed. I remember being very confused. And, you know, I think you know me better than 
most people. And I, especially at that age, really wanted to make everybody around me happy. And so I think I said what people wanted me to say or what was being said to agree with them because I didn't want to cause problems. But I think I, he made you say that because he said for you not to lie and stuff like that. So I think he coerced you to say stuff that wasn't really happening to cover his own butt. Jacob loved being held over your head, lifted up really high. He loved to sit on people's shoulders. He loved to be kind of thrown around a little bit, not not anything dangerous or anything abusive, but more of like a kind of how you play with babies when you kind of toss them up a little bit. He loved that stuff. Uh, he would laugh and laugh. And, and then he started to show some extreme anxiety. One day my grandmother tried to pick him up over her head and he started panicking and screaming and grabbing at her hair, which was something that he had never done before. And, and that was uh, that was very concerning for my mom and my grandmother. My mom actually confronted Spencer and asked him if he had been playing rough with Jacob. And Spencer said, no, why do you ask? And she picks Jacob up over her head and he starts reacting the same way. And she said, this is why. He's never acted like this before. He's always loved to be picked up like this and now he's panicking and Spencer grabs Jacob and says no all I do is this and he picks up Jacob over his head again and Jacob again starts screaming and he's practically jumping out of Spencer's arms into my mom's arms and my mom said don't ever play with him like that again he doesn't like it. It wasn't long before these strange occurrences with Jacob began to see the baby being taken to the ER. According to the case files in early March of 1987 Anna had noticed that the baby Jacob had somehow injured his ear. And so Anna decided to take Jacob to the doctor to have it checked out. And thankfully the doctor told her that it wasn't serious and treated the minor ear wounds. When Anna brought Jacob back home, she spoke to Eric, who was now six years old, and asked him what had happened, as it had only been Eric, Spencer and Jacob in the house. After a degree of persistence, Eric admitted to his mother Anna that Jacob had been crying and so he had decided to go and pick Jacob up out of his crib. Though after he had done so, he had actually dropped Jacob. Eric then immediately picks Jacob back up and puts him back into the crib. According to this account, Eric and Jacob were being watched by Spencer at the time, though he hadn't mentioned anything to Anna at all. About two weeks after that minor incident, Anna noticed a large soft lump on the side of Jacob's head and so she took Jacob to the doctor again to have it checked out. It was immediately clear to the doctor that treated Jacob that he had sustained an injury caused by a blow to the head. Anna immediately questioned Eric about this blow to the head that Jacob had sustained and Eric confessed to kicking Jacob on the head because allegedly Jacob had been pulling on his hair. As a result of these two injuries, Anna decided to take matters into her own hands. She telephoned Eric's father, her first husband, who had been living in Idaho, California, and explained to him that Eric hadn't been receiving enough attention at home, which is what she believed had been the root of Eric's violent outbursts towards Jacob. And she asked Eric's father to take custody of Eric in California. Anna believed that by removing Eric from the family home, Jacob would be safe and would no longer sustain any injuries. Unfortunately, Jacob had fallen unwell after he had had surgery to his head to aid with the head injury that he had sustained from Eric kicking him. 
and he'd become fussy. Jacob then developed a fever on the 6th of April 1987, which prompted yet another visit to the doctor, who told Anna that Jacob had an ear infection. Anna was given medication to give to Jacob to help with this ear infection. However, Jacob actually had a reaction to the medication, which caused him to break out in a rash. Due to the head injury, human services were contacted by Jacob's doctor to visit the family home to inquire as to how Jacob had sustained such an injury. After telling a worker from human services about Eric's confession and that they had sent Eric to live with his father in California, the worker left the family home. Human services never contacted Anna again. Anna had hoped that her actions meant that Jacob would be safe. But on the 9th of April, 1987, that hope came crashing down all around her. Anna had been employed as a checker at the local supermarket and typically had a shift between 3pm and 9pm. She'd actually requested those, her shifts to be changed in uh, recent weeks so that she could keep better eye on Jacob. This new shift works really well for Anna and she was able to have her mother care for Jacob while she was at work. You see, Anna didn't trust her boyfriend Spencer with Jacob at all. She'd seen the red flags, but she hadn't realized at this point the violent extremes that Spencer would go to. However, on the 9th of April, she'd been scheduled to work an earlier shift, the 11 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. shift. My mom had really limited the amount of time that Jacob was allowed to be alone with Spencer. And she did that because she had some suspicions about what was happening, mostly because once I was out of the picture, Jacob's injuries didn't stop. They continued to happen. And that's that's really why she pulled back on allowing him to be alone with Jacob. She had rearranged her work schedule so that my grandmother could watch Jacob whenever she was working. And, and it just worked out that way, except for one particular day. My mom called me about an hour before I was going to get out. And she said, I want to go to church. What do I do with the baby? Where do I take him? And I didn't know what to do. There's no cell phones. All my family worked. I said, I guess take him to my boyfriend. He was, then he was my boyfriend. Take him to him. He said, it's only an hour before I get out. What can happen in an hour? My exact words. I have forever regret those words. And that during that hour, I have felt so uneasy. I never told this to anybody. And I was begging, begging my manager, please, please let me go home. It's not busy. You don't need me here. He just laugh at me and say no go do this go do that and I just made myself work and it got a little bit busy so I was checking out a customer I heard the ambulance pass by at that moment he ran in the store he said Jacob's in the ambulance I don't know what happened I said well, what do you mean Jacob's in the ambulance and he just he said we gotta go we gotta go and I just ran out the store I left the customer there. I don't know what happened. I just left and I got to the ER and my mom and dad were there. I don't even know how they got there. And I, Jacob was in, in the room and I walked in and I touched my baby on, on his chest and he took a big deep breath. I can't you. Mama was home. Mama was there with him. And they had to fly him to Albuquerque. They took him to Presbyterian and the injuries were so bad, they had to airlift them to UNM Trauma Center. Jacob was brought to the emergency room at the New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, the Trauma Center, 
after a last-minute decision to not transfer him to Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Mick Williams arrived at the emergency room of the New Mexico Hospital at around 9.45pm on the 9th of April 1987. Jacob was already in the emergency room and Dr. McWilliams performed an initial examination on the nine-month-old baby. It was determined by Dr. McWilliams that Jacob was in a stage of coma and had significant injury to the brain. Paramedics who had responded to the initial emergency call had noted that one of Jacob's pupils had been dilated, which is indicative of swelling of the brain. Though when Jacob was examined by Dr. McWilliams, it was determined that both of Jacob's pupils were equal and reactive, which was a good sign. Doctors had put Jacob on a hyperventilation treatment to try to combat the brain swelling, and it had worked. The massive danger with swelling of the brain is that it can cause the brain to hemorrhage, which, as you can guess, is completely fatal. So thankfully, this meant that Jacob was stabilising. So the doctors took him immediately to have a CT scan to assess what was going on in Jacob's head. It was discovered that Jacob had a skull fracture that appeared to have been fresh, in the posterior position of Jacob's head. It was also found that he had a healed scar on his head, which is likely from when he was brought into hospital with a head injury after Eric had allegedly kicked him, but no other obvious traumas. Jacob was then immediately taken to the intensive care unit as the doctors reviewed the case and the best steps going forward. It was determined that once Jacob was in a more stable condition, he should be taken to the operating room to have a catheter inserted in the area of the hydrocephalus to measure the pressure within Jacob's skull. Due to the urgency of the operation, the doctors felt it was an emergency operation and thus signed the release forms for Jacob to go into surgery. One of the doctors on the case decided to, as the surgeons were operating, lay down to sleep so he could be fully rested for when Jacob came out of surgery. At around 3.40am on the 10th of April 1987, this doctor, who had been resting, was awoken by a call from a resident in the operating theatre. The resident informs the doctor that Jacob had become unstable on the operating table and that they had been unable to bring Jacob back. The nine-month-old baby had died. By this point, Anna, Anna's mother, Spencer, and another family member were waiting in the family waiting room. The doctors then had to break the devastating news to them. As you can imagine, this news caused Anna to become extremely emotional. She ran out of the family waiting room screaming. After a short while, Anna returned to the family waiting room, and the doctors explained to Anna and Spencer that Jacob had been extremely unwell and near death when he had arrived at the hospital, and that they hadn't been able to save him. This, again, caused Anna to run out of the room, leaving Dr. McWilliams with Spencer. This is where the case begins to get extremely interesting. When Dr. McWilliams spoke with Spencer, Spencer appeared to be nervous and had implied that Jacob's death was going to make him look bad. The question on everyone's minds in the early hours of the 10th of April 1987 was what the hell had happened during that one hour period that Jacob had been left with Spencer. Dr. McWilliams inquired as to the events during that hour, asking Spencer what exactly had happened. Spencer confirms that Jacob had been with him for around an hour and that Jacob had become irritable, which Spencer claims was how Jacob acted whenever he was tired and ready to go to bed. And so Spencer decided to put Jacob on the couch. 
Spencer describes this couch to have been two to three and a half feet high, with a coffee table approximately six to eight inches in front of the couch. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but two to three and a half foot high is extremely tall for a couch. It's literally described as being around half of my own height, which is six foot two. It is unclear whether this is supposed to be the sofa height or the seat height, but from what I've gathered, it is implied that this is supposed to be the seat height. The average seat height of a sofa is 16 inches, or about 1.3 foot tall. Nowhere near the two to three and a half foot height described by Spencer. I don't know if that's just nitpicking, but why exactly he described it to be so tall becomes quickly clear within his own accounts. So. Let's explore what he told the doctor next. Spencer had been listening to the stereo quite loudly when he had put Jacob on the couch, and he had told the doctor that after he had put Jacob on the couch, he had gone to change the tape in the stereo. It was as he was doing so that he heard gasping noises and turned around to see Jacob on the floor lying sideways between the couch and the coffee table. When he went over to Jacob, Spencer claimed to have seen some yellow frothy material coming from his mouth which the doctor suggested likely to have been throw up. Spencer then, according to his own accounts, began performing CPR on Jacob, trying to clear his airways of the throw up, before rushing him to a neighbor's trailer to call for the paramedics as he didn't have a telephone. The doctor took notes during Spencer's accounts that it appeared as if Spencer was far more concerned for his own reputation than that of Jacob's well-being. He told the doctor that he felt that he was going to be blamed for Jacob's death. When interviewed by the police, Dr. McWilliams stated that Jacob had died from pulmonary edema as a result of the head injury, and that there would have not been enough force from a fall from a couch to cause that kind of severe injury, rather it being far more probable to have occurred from a strike of an open hand with severe force. When Jacob had been brought to the ER, the police were informed and they began to investigate this case as a suspected child abuse case. The doctors had provided them with their suspicions of child abuse and how Spencer's accounts failed to line up with the medical evidence. At about 11.50am on the 10th of April 1987, detectives went to the Albuquerque International Airport to pick up Eric, Eric's father and Anna. Anna had met Eric and her first husband at the hospital and the investigators brought them in for questioning. When my dad and I landed in Albuquerque at the airport on April 10th, 1987, I was very upset because I knew that my brother had been taken to the hospital. I didn't know that he had died yet, but I knew that something serious was happening. And I remember being very afraid, very sad. I think I cried quite a bit, actually. And when I saw my mom waiting for me with the police, it really, it really shook me up pretty bad. It was, it was the worst, the worst day, I think, in my life because my mom then told us that that Jacob didn't make it and I remember my mom and, and dad and I all got very emotional in that moment and then we were whisked away by the state police and taken into into questioning they asked me if I had ever hit my brother if I had ever hurt my brother they asked me if my mom's then boyfriend had ever hit me if I ever witnessed Jacob being hit by somebody it was it was pretty intense I remember being very afraid of it of the whole situation. It's just, it just wasn't a great, you know, feeling to be interrogated by state police when you're, when you're that young. It was immediately clear to the investigators that Eric blamed himself for Jacob's death. He'd felt a lot of guilt surrounding it. Eric explained to the authorities that if he had not hit his brother weeks ago, 
he wouldn't have fallen off the sofa and he wouldn't have died. Of course, this six-year-old's guilt was completely unfounded, as I'm sure you've already pieced together. Spencer had been physically abusing Jacob and manipulating Eric into taking the blame. Sure, there would have been instances where Eric, as a six-year-old, would have hit his little brother. It's an unfortunate reality with children. But the more extreme injuries that Jacob sustains, and the injuries that Jacob sustained after Eric had been sent to live with his father in California, were clearly inflicted on Jacob by Spencer. When Eric was questioned by the investigators about this head injury that Jacob had sustained a few weeks before he had died, Eric became notably agitated and told them that he hadn't meant to hurt Jacob. But when Eric was questioned about who had done that to Jacob, he said that he didn't know. It also strikes me of particular concern how this six-year-old is supposed to kick Jacob in the head with such a degree of force to have caused that injury that he had sustained uh, weeks before he had died. That injury required Jacob to have to have... Um, his head um, operated on. So um, it's really, really strange um, and really doesn't line up at all that that injury was caused by a six-year-old child who wasn't particularly athletic. It doesn't make sense at all. On the 10th of April 1987, the autopsy report was completed, which indicated several interesting factors. Firstly, the pathologist had found a broken rib that was an older injury. The pathologist also determines that Jacob had slight trauma to the buttocks. Suspicions of sinister involvement from Spencer grew, and he was asked to undergo a polygraph examination on the 15th of April 1987, though the day before, on the 14th of April, Spencer confessed. Spencer, in this confession, claims that on that day, he had been playing with Jacob next to the armchair in the living room. Spencer had allegedly been on the floor with Jacob balancing on his arms. And then Spencer suddenly thought that Jacob was going to fall and was going to hurt himself. And so he grabbed Jacob by the left arm and stood up quickly. As he was standing up, Jacob's head hit on the side of the armchair. Spencer also confessed that he believed that Jacob had hit his head on the floor too. Now, Jacob apparently barely reacted to this event. He was fine, didn't cry, didn't fuss or anything. And then Jacob began to get sleepy. So Spencer put him on the couch, which is when Jacob fell off the couch, as he had explained in his earlier accounts. Following the confession, the investigators began to evaluate the case and try and determine whether to proceed with an arrest on the charge of abandonment or abuse of a child. On the 21st of April 1987, the report of death document was submitted to the investigators, which listed Jacob's cause of death as homicide. On the 9th of July 1987, the investigators reached out to Spencer to conduct a polygraph examination. Of notes in this polygraph examination, Spencer was asked the following questions. Did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area on April 9th, 1987? Spencer answered no. Did you intentionally strike the baby in the head area before he went limp? Spencer answered no. However, the polygraph indicated that Spencer was not being truthful when he had answered no to those two questions. Now, I have to remind everyone of the reliability of polygraph examinations. They're inadmissible in courts for a reason. Despite this and the medical evidence and testimony against Spencer, 
On the 7th of December 1987, the district attorney ruled that there was insufficient evidence to file criminal charges. The report of death for Jacob was also amended to unknown, which is not accidental, homicide or suicide, it's just unknown. And that was really where the case went cold for a few years. During those few years, Jacob and Eric's mother, Anna, actually married Spencer. Though by the time 1991 came around, Anna and Spencer's marriage had crumbled and Anna went to the police station on the 9th of January 1991 to file a new report. Anna told the authorities that she had initially believed Spencer's story, that Jacob's death had in fact been accidental. She claims that she had stayed close to Spencer in the hopes that truth would come out, and that she had never really trusted him. Anna and Spencer had been married for three years up until 1991, and Anna told the investigators that during that time, Spencer verbally and physically abused her. Anna also said that Spencer had been verbally abusive towards Eric during that time too, but not physically abusive. She also told the authorities that she did not believe that Eric had caused that first head injury to Jacob, as the six-year-old wouldn't have had nearly enough strength to do so, as we spoke about. On the 12th of August 1992, an arrest warrant was issued for the abandonment or abuse of a child for Spencer. Spencer was then arrested on the 25th of August 1992. He was interviewed again by the authorities and he stuck to his original story. Unfortunately, the records following Spencer's arrest no longer exist. So we're unsure why, but on the 30th of August 1992, Spencer was released from custody and no charges were brought against him. The case then grew cold again until 2005, when Anna contacted a detective to reopen the cold case. This detective concluded that there was sufficient evidence in this investigator's opinion to prove that Spencer knew of Jacob's recent head injury, which occurred several weeks before this incident, and this incident which then resulted in Jacob's death. Spencer should have been more attentive with Jacob's needs due to Jacob's recent head injury. In addition, Spencer had taken care of Jacob numerous times before this incident, so he was familiar with Jacob. Spencer did negligently and without justifiable cause place Jacob in a situation that endangered his, Jacob's, life. Spencer knew of Jacob's prior injury and combines with the facts that he had changed his story or version of events during the investigation, which were not witnessed by anybody else, several times. That fact alone draws a lot of suspicion to any story he tells after his initial statements. This incident, which resulted in Jacob's death, occurred one way, not the two or three ways as told by Spencer. Spencer knew that he needed to be much more attentive to Jacob's needs, as Jacob was only nine months old and still in need of almost constant supervision, especially due to the recent injury, and Spencer failed this. Despite this conclusion, no criminal charges were filed against Spencer, and the case once again grew cold. This is where Jacob's family and I need your help. We need to put pressure on the DA's office to reopen the case and re-examine the evidence so that Jacob's family can finally find justice and peace. We are urging those who are able to, to call the Socorro County DA at 575-835-0052 and simply request the following. My name is your name from wherever you're from. 
and I am requesting that you reopen and re-examine case number 05233007, whereby on the 9th of April 1987, nine-month-old Jacob Jeremiah Landin was murdered. You can also send a letter to the DA in uh, Socorro County at PO Box 1099, Socorro, New Mexico 87801. You can also email them at 7thda at da.state.nm.us. Let's use the power of the people to help bring justice to Jacob's family and to help them find closure. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime case just like this one. A massive thank you to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode. Go show them some love and support by clicking the link at the top of the description and the link in the pinned comments. Make sure you use my coupon code Joshua Miles to get your discounts. And finally, a huge thank you to Eric for speaking with me about his little brother and allowing me to show you all the unjust tragedy that befell his family. We have recently opened an email address that you can contact if, if your family member, your loved one or uh, your friend has also met tragedy and you want their story to be covered on this channel. Uh, the email address for that is contact at alittleaesthetic.co. We will then send you a form to fill out to verify that you're not a troll or anything like that. And for everyone else who has case suggestions, you can go to requestacase.com and send in your case suggestions there. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.